Well, there are two women who hold such important places in the overarching plan of God. In fact, they're important enough to bear mention in the eternal word of God, the Bible. They're very unique women. As a matter of fact, the similarities that they share are similarities which no other women in Scripture possess. They are very much in an exclusive club of two. Both of them were married to husbands who were called in Scripture righteous men. In fact, they're named righteous men by God himself. Both of these women were old enough to have adult children. Both of them are extremely key figures in Scripture, and yet, ironically, they're never identified by name. Their names are not given. Both women had husbands who were deeply disturbed over the great sinfulness of mankind in their midst. One of her husbands faithfully called his neighbors to repent before God. The, the other husband is mentioned in Scripture as by the Apostle Peter, quote, greatly distressed by the wicked that he saw the lawlessness of those living among him, and he was distressed by this. He's called a righteous man. Both women lived in a debauched and wicked society surrounded by evil neighbors, Both women had husbands who were given direct messages from God concerning the coming wrath of God upon sinners. Both women's husbands told them of this coming wrath. They also told their wives of the means of escape. Both women would then have to follow their husbands, trusting the word of the Lord. Both women would be asked to leave everything they had ever known to escape this coming judgment. Both would be asked then to wait patiently on the Lord to have great faith in doing so. And so they're very much a club of two women with all of these similarities. But really at that point, that's where the similarities end. The first woman would become an example for us to follow. The other one would become a warning of what not to do. The first woman believed God and followed through in complete obedience. The other woman initially believed God, but she didn't follow through. The first woman demonstrated her belief by her faithfulness. The other woman was exposed as a fraud. And in fact, Jesus used her as an example of what not to be. The first woman believed her husband's message concerning the coming judgment. The other woman did not believe her husband. The first woman put her husband and her family first in obedience to the Lord and was rewarded. The other woman abandoned her husband. She abandoned her family for the pleasures of this world and was ultimately punished. The first woman made her husband proud. The other woman humiliated her husband. The first woman lived a long life and saw grandchildren and possibly beyond. The other woman died young before she ever saw even her grandchildren. The first woman would ultimately be reunited with her husband in eternity. The other woman would be separated from him in eternity. The first woman demonstrated great patience in waiting on the Lord, knowing that for decades a disaster was coming. The other woman had no patience and couldn't wait on the Lord for one day. And if we could say it this way, the first woman could be remembered as a pillar of steadfastness. And the other woman is now only remembered as a pillar of salt. And you've probably guessed by now that we're talking about the wives of Noah and the wives of Lot, the wife of Lot, of Sodom and Gomorrah fame. The wife of Noah and the wife of Lot. And the the similarities between them are absolutely staggering. And yet the final outcome of their life is that they went in two completely opposite and, and honestly eternal directions. They literally became eternally different. One of the hallmarks that set Noah's wife apart from Lot's wife was the fact that Noah's wife demonstrated a tremendous ability to wait upon the Lord. And in our series, Strength in the Desert, in which we're examining how individuals and groups in the Bible waited upon God, we're trying to glean some lessons from their faithfulness, from their example. And so far, we've heard from Israel in the wilderness two times and from Paul and Silas in the Philippian prison. And tonight, if you can imagine Noah's wife showing up to your front door and coming into your living room, her lesson, what she would say, is be loyal to your calling while you wait. Be loyal to your calling while you wait. That a key to waiting on the Lord 
when there are major issues in your life yet to be resolved, particularly those areas of pain in which it seems that you have no control at all, the key from Noah's perspective, Noah's wife's perspective, is do what you're supposed to do right now. Be loyal to your calling at this moment. Keep your eyes off next year. Keep your eyes off the next decade and keep them on today to be loyal to God's call for you right now. And what is remarkable about Noah's wife is when we talk about waiting on the Lord, generally speaking, what we're talking about is we're in a negative circumstance and waiting for it to turn positive. Noah's wife was in a positive circumstance, living a nice, normal life, waiting for it to turn negative. That's a difficult wait. And so our lessons from her, I think, will be useful to us. Now, the remarkable similarities between Noah's wife and Lot's wife really demands that we understand the context of both women's lives and the specific cataclysmic judgments from which God offered to save them. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And while you're turning to Genesis 6, I'd like to review for you what happened to Lot's wife. What happened to Lot's wife? And you don't have to turn to these passages. You can just go to Genesis 6. But in Genesis 18... God told Abraham that he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because, quote, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave, according to verse 20. Abraham's nephew Lot and his family lived in the city of Sodom. And so Abraham famously entreats the Lord in chapter 18. He says, suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. God said he would spare it. How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? And he keeps whittling it down all the way to 10, and still God would spare the city. But there weren't 10, and so God sent two angels to Sodom to warn Lot and his family. They identified themselves as messengers of God in Genesis 19, 13, and said that God is about to destroy this city. And they asked Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone else you have in this city, bring him out of this place. And so Lot believed the angels. He went immediately to warn his sons-in-law, meaning that they were engaged to be married to his two daughters. They thought he was joking. They thought this was a big joke. Well, the next day, the angels came to Lot and to his wife and daughters to get them out immediately. Lot hesitated, and the angels literally grabbed Lot, grabbed his wife, grabbed his daughters, and took them out of the city. And they gave him instructions in Genesis 19, verse 17. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And then judgment came. Genesis 19, 24, and 25 record, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And then famously, Genesis 19, 26 tells us, But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, the way we generally picture this is that she glanced around her shoulder and with a look of disdain on her face, she suddenly froze in place. And that's how the old movies used to portray it. We'll see that it's a little bit different than that. Now, between me and you, I, I might not begrudge a quick glance back. I mean, how often do you get to see God raining sulfur and fire down on the earth? I, I would be curious to see what that looks like as I'm running for my life. What does it look like for God to deep fry an entire valley, including two cities? I would be curious about this. So was it just that Lot's wife glanced back? No, it's, it's not that she looked back. She stopped. She stopped short of the safety of the mountains above the valley that they were instructed to run to. Why did she stop? Well, she failed to completely separate herself from the hold that Sodom had on her. Jesus described Sodom as the place where people were reveling in earthly life devoid of faith in God. He said in Luke 17 that they were, quote, eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Not that any of those things are inherently wrong, but that they were doing this all devoid of faith in God. They were completely worldly, completely about earthly pleasures. Genesis 19 describes Sodom as a city so incredibly ravaged by sexual immorality, particularly by homosexuality, that the men of the city were literally trying to break into Lot's house to satisfy their sexual cravings. 
It was a city where you could party. It was a city where you could sin. It was a city where you could fling yourself into your own pleasures all you wanted to. And Lot's wife couldn't let go. She gave evidence of where her true affections were. How do we know she couldn't let go? How do we know this? Well, Lot was given permission by the angels to escape to the little city of Zoar. They told him that they would do nothing until Lot and his family arrived there. Genesis 19.22 tells us this. Then in verses 23 and 24, we're told that Lot came to Zoar. And then, after they got there, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah out of heaven, turning the whole valley into a charred graveyard. You see, Lot's wife didn't look back. She went back. She went back. And she was buried in the debris and salt raining down on her, her corpse, becoming encrusted in the minerals left behind from the judgment of God. Now, to our main focus today, it's important for us to understand what was happening many, many centuries earlier in Noah's day, a time when men and women were still in a pre-flood world. They were living for centuries and centuries because of the protected nature of the earth before the flood. And in Genesis 6, now, we walk through this very strikingly similar situation. We see the introduction of the situation, the introduction of the main character in Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then the next two verses, verses 6 and 7, records that the great sorrow of God had with humanity is that they were, they were so corrupt. And in fact, we see the emotion of this in verse 6. It grieved him to his heart. Enter now the main character in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this word favor is so important for us. It's a Hebrew word that means grace, special blessing. He was the object of affection of God. And this shows us that Noah wasn't saved by his righteousness. Like us, he was saved by grace. He was saved by God's decision to place his favor upon Noah. It was God's choice. And then we're given a description of Noah as this man who found favor with God, who received grace from God. And in verse 9, we have three pieces of information. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, what does this tell us about him? It doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner. It describes him as a man in a covenantal relationship with God. The same term that he was a righteous man is used to describe Abraham in Genesis 17.1. This is our first piece of information. Noah was a righteous man. Abraham, we know, is a man who was credited by God with righteousness. Genesis 15.6, he was justified by God. He was saved by his faith. And the New Testament makes it very clear that Noah, like Abraham, he feared God and he believed God by faith. Hebrews 11, verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen... In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I think it's very interesting for us to note that Genesis 6, verse 9, is the very first mention of the concept of righteousness in the entire Bible. And it sets the standard that righteousness comes by faith. There's a second character trait we see of Noah here. He's blameless in his generation. And understand that to be blameless in the Old Testament doesn't mean to be sinless. It means that he exhibited proper conduct before God as a result of being in a forgiven and a justified relationship with God. And I would say that this is saying something to be blameless in his, in his generation, considering the fact that there were only seven others on earth who were faithful. He resisted all of the temptations, all of the sins of this earth. And then we get a third character trait in verse 9, that Noah walked with God. What does this mean? Well, all through Scripture, the metaphor of walking with God speaks of a life centered around obedience, centered around worship of God. He wasn't a part-time believer. He wasn't a Sunday morning Christian, so to speak. He wasn't someone who lived a separate life over here and then his supposed life of faith over here. His life was a life of faith. He walked with God. And then we see the initial instructions of God, just kind of the beginning point. Chapter 6, verse 13, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. 
For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then in verses 14 through 20, we get instructions for this massive ark. We see the the uh, dimensions for it in verse 15, 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits, a, a massive craft. And this is preparation for a worldwide flood. There's quite a debate as to whether the flood was worldwide or not. I don't know why there's even a debate. Look with me at verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. It was a worldwide flood. And then in verse 18, God promises to establish a covenant with, with Noah, and God names all of the elect on the earth at that time. Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives. That's it. And Noah was to bring two of every living thing on earth to preserve the animals, and later God would instruct Noah also to bring seven pairs of certain clean animals. And so there's the, the initial instructions of God. Then we get up closer to the actual flood itself. We get the final instructions of God in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. One week before the rains start, and keep in mind he's building a cruise ship-sized craft in a landlocked country. One week before the rains start, God told him the rains would come and they wouldn't stop for 40 days. And here's a key. Look at Noah's character. Chapter 7, verse 5. After having been told, build the biggest craft in the history of the world in a place where there is no ocean. Verse 5, And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. What had, been, what had Noah been doing in addition to building the ark? Well, he'd been inviting people to join him. This is a very, very big ship. He'd been warning of an impending judgment. There's plenty of room. There's plenty of places for you. Second Peter 2, verse 5, calls Noah, quote, a herald of righteousness. This is a Greek noun based on the verb keruso to mean to, be, to preach, to proclaim. I like the translation, the preacher of righteousness. That when he's not working on the ark, he's proclaiming coming judgment. He's proclaiming that God is righteous and you are unholy. And if you want to be saved from coming judgment, you must repent of your sin and get on the ark. And then the flood comes in... Chapter 7, verse 6, all the way through chapter 8, verse 17, Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. And it wasn't just rain. We also see that the great reserves of water, the vast caverns of water supplying the earth, they burst open with volcanic activity all over the world. And what was under the earth now began flooding the earth along with the massive rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And just to make certain that we grasp the, the scope of the flood, the Narrative is crystal clear in chapter 7, verse 19. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's about 22 feet or so above the tallest mountain on earth. The flood was simultaneously forming mountains with volcanic eruptions and then covering them as well. In fact, we get a very specific chronology of the flood in Genesis 7 and 8 by adding up the days given that it rained for 40 days and nights. And then we see a total of 150 days, including that first 40, the waters covering the whole earth. At that point, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. By the way, not on Mount Ararat as we know it today. Mount Ararat as we know it today is actually one large tall peak and a smaller peak below it and we know from geologic history that those mountains were formed long after the flood so it's the mountains of Ararat not Mount Ararat as it is today but it, nevertheless it's a very very accurate geographic location 74 days after the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat the tops of the mountains began to be visible new mountain ranges never before seen and can you imagine this almost every day hey look over there there's another one look over there there's another one that's 74 days later. They waited an additional 146 days for a total of 370 days from the day they got on the ark to the day they got off. Just over a full year on the ark before God commanded Noah and his family to come off. And the literary center, the centerpiece, the, the magnificent middle of this story, the highlight of the grace of God to save is chapter 8, verse 1. This beautiful phrase, but God remembered Noah. 
God remembered Noah. Now Noah and his family exit the ark. Chapter 8, verses 18 and 19 record this. They offer sacrifice to the Lord in gratitude. They worship him together. And the Lord establishes his covenant with Noah that he would never again destroy the earth with water. Now, we don't have a lot of direct information about Noah's wife. In fact, she's only mentioned five times in the flood account, and it doesn't take long to walk through these. She's mentioned long before the flood in Genesis six eighteen, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. She's mentioned a second time right before the flood. Genesis 7, verse 7, And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And then she's mentioned right, right before the flood. In Genesis 7, 13, On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. Then she's mentioned after the flood on the ark. Genesis 8, verse 16, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Then she's mentioned after the flood off the ark. Genesis 8, verse 18, So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. So you might say, how are you going to preach a message on a woman for whom we have no information? Well, stick around and we'll find out. Other than those references, we really don't have much in the way of information about her. Now, we do have a lot of myths. There are tons of myths and legends about Noah's wife. Uh, One common myth is that she gathered every variety of plant and tree on the earth, and she was the one to preserve agricultural wisdom. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. It's plausible, but we don't actually know. The biggest thing that we have speculating about Noah's wife is her name. Speculation about her name goes all the way back at least to the second century B.C. The most common tradition gives her the name Naamah. The Genesis commentary from the fifth century A.D. called Genesis Rabbah states, quote, Naamah, daughter of Lamech and sister to Tubal-Cain, was Noah's wife. And where do they get this? Well, they get this from Genesis 4.22, And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Now, why would they take this? Because it would be very unusual in any biblical genealogy to just randomly mention who somebody's sister was. And so they take it as possible that her name was Naamah. The Book of Jubilees, the Jewish book written in the 2nd century uh, B.C., chapter 4, verse 33, states, quote, Noah took to himself a wife, and her name was Imzarah. Imzara, which means the ancestor of Sarah. But scripture doesn't reveal her name, so that's obviously not an important part of the narrative. She is, like almost every faithful believer in God throughout all the ages, anonymous and faithful. And so for us, we'll just go with Mrs. Noah. I think that will be fine. So how is Mrs. Noah an example to us of being loyal to your calling while you wait? How's she an example? Well, we don't have much direct information, but what we do have are the remarkable similarities between her and Lot's wife. Comparisons are valid and they're useful for us and they'll help us draw some conclusions. So we can reasonably suggest three elements of Mrs. Noah's calling, her faithfulness to the Lord, that she would say to us to be loyal to your calling. What was she called to? which she was faithful to while she waited. Well, first, we would say her calling is to rest in the future. To rest in the future. Now, we have to start with kind of an interesting theological problem here. We have to start with the spiritual status of Mrs. Noah. There exists quite a lively debate among scholars as to the salvation status of Mrs. Noah. Many believe that Noah alone is listed as righteous before God, but that God simply brought his family along. And there is some validity to this. I mean, after all, couldn't it be that God simply graciously allowed Noah to bring his family along simply because they were needed to propagate the new human race? I'm going to assert my opinion at this point that Mrs. Noah did have a strong and abiding faith in God and was considered righteous. She was counted righteous before God just as her husband was. But I just use a word that I don't like using in the pulpit, and that is opinion. My opinion is invalid. So the question is then, is there any actual evidence of her salvation? 
Well, there's no direct statements about her spiritual status, but I could give you five reasons for believing that Mrs. Noah was saved, that she was a child of the living God. Here they are. First reason, she lived up to the same standard as her husband. She lived up to the same standard as her husband. Genesis 6 verse 9 says that Noah walked with God, meaning that he lived his life in worship to God, in obedience to God. Like Abraham, Noah believed God. And the standard which was applied to Noah, which resulted in God saving him, was God's grace. And the evidence of his salvation, as we talked about this morning in John chapter 9, was Noah's behavior, his conduct. Now, question, who gets into the world's first cruise ship in a country with no water in sight? Someone who believes God and someone who obeys the Lord. Someone who walks with God, even when God says to become the laughingstock of your neighbors. And so the first piece of evidence is that she lived up to the same standard as Noah did. Second evidence for her salvation, a comparison to Lot's wife reveals a believing heart. A comparison to Lot's wife reveals a believing heart. Both of them were told of cataclysmic judgment they had never seen was coming. Both were given this information by their husbands. Both were given a way to avoid judgment. Both would have to abandon everything they had ever known in obedience to God. Noah's wife did it. Lot's wife refused. She refused to obey. Noah's wife did not refuse. She obeyed the word of the Lord. There's a third bit of evidence. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that Noah could not save anyone else. Noah could not save anyone else. That it logically cannot be possible that God simply saved Noah's family only because of Noah's faith alone. That no one will be saved merely by association with him. And we see this in Ezekiel chapter 14. You don't have to turn there, just listen. In Ezekiel 14, God is promising coming judgment on Jerusalem for her faithlessness. And he gives an illustration. He says, that even if three godly men from the past were in Jerusalem, they could only save themselves. They could not save anybody else, even though they are godly and righteous. Ezekiel 14, verse 14. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, in Jerusalem, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. Noah could not save anyone else. It's a fourth piece of evidence that makes me believe that Noah's wife was saved. We're told in Scripture that a person is neither saved nor condemned because of family association. Scripture says that a person is neither saved nor condemned because of family association. And we see this just a few chapters later in Ezekiel chapter 18. In verses 5 through 13, God gives his standard of judgment. He says clearly that if a righteous man who loves the Lord has a son then who is, quote, violent, a shedder of blood. In verse 10, and he lists other sins. He says this, his blood shall be upon himself. In other words, he won't be saved because he has a righteous father. And likewise, a few verses later, if a son is righteous and he sees his father's sinful, disgusting rebellion and does not follow in his father's footsteps, he will not die for his father's sin. And so we're told in Scripture that a person is neither saved nor condemned because of family association. My fifth bit of evidence, it's my favorite one, is New Testament confirmation. Elsewhere in Scripture, the ark is presented as a picture of spiritual salvation, not just physical salvation. The ark is pictured as, a, as spiritual salvation. 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 gives us a picture of, of the safety of the ark and being brought safely to spiritual salvation. That like, quote, the eight persons were brought safely through the water, the spiritual baptism of Christ, quote, now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's spiritual salvation. That's not just being saved from drowning. The point that we get from these five pieces of evidence is that faith is individual you will not be saved because of your relatives who believe, nor will you be condemned because of your relatives who do not believe. I think this is very clear to us. So, based on the assertion that Mrs. Noah is saved, what was her hope? Well, her hope was to rest in the future while being faithful now. 
Now, when I say resting in the future, we're talking about not hoping that in a couple of months or a couple of years or even a couple of decades, things are going to get better. As a matter of fact, she knew categorically things were actually going to get worse. So when we talk about resting in the future, we're talking about coming to, clinging to eternal goals, eternal hope, something far beyond this world. She was living in a sin-infested, immorality-ridden world, which, in which I, I can't even imagine this. Literally everyone outside her own home hated God and despised God's ways. I can't fathom that. In fact, the generations before her, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, they were all hoping in a righteous man who would give rest to the followers of God, rest from the wickedness of sin. This promise was first made in Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy of a coming Messiah, one who would give the world rest from sin. But then we see a kind of a prophetic miniature fulfillment of this coming rest. The hope that the world would be rid of sin, rid of the consequences of sin. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, look with me at this. This is interesting because we see this little microcosm, this little miniature fulfillment. Genesis 5, beginning of verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed This one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That in Noah's day, the righteous would have rest from the curse and rest from the consequences of sin. And so Lamech named his son Noah, which rhymes with the Hebrew word for rest. It's a word play that we will receive rest, we'll receive comfort, we'll receive relief that perhaps Noah would be this long for Messiah who would give the world rest from sin. Well, Noah wasn't the Messiah, but it would be through him and his faithfulness that the world would have at least temporary relief from the infestation of sin that it experienced. And so Mrs. Noah watched as the ark is built year by year, fully knowing that she's looking at the means by which God would physically save her, physically save her family And as progress was made day by day, she lived year after year in this growing shadow of the ark as it grew to massive proportions. How could she not hope in the efficacy and the the ability of that ark to carry her to safety? That she would one day step onto the ark and eventually step off of it onto a new world. A world in which, at least for the first generation, everyone was a worshiper of God. Everyone loved the Lord. Obviously, the ark for the believer in Christ is Christ himself. The comparison made in 1 Peter 3 with the ark and salvation focuses on our complete salvation, our total salvation, meaning our ability to escape our own deaths, to escape our own mortality. 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22 says that we're coming through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. There is an eternality to our hope. And in a very real sense, Mrs. Noah every single day was looking intently. When she looks at the ark, she's looking at the end of her life as she knows it. The ark represented the end of everything she knew on earth, and yet it was also the means of escape to a new world. This is harder to do when you're younger, but whatever it is you're waiting on, whatever it is you're waiting for, whatever dissatisfaction there is in this life, if you'll simply skip ahead in your thinking to the end of your life as you know it, to the ark of Christ and his resurrection, which guarantees your safe passage to heaven, that whatever you're waiting for here on earth, if you'll skip ahead to that moment, everything you're waiting for begins to fade in importance, fade in pressure. Many precious saints who are dying have figured this out. They figured it out, and they, and they can very easily focus on what's coming. They can very easily focus on the eternal. Why? Because there's nothing left for them here. There's nothing left. As a matter of fact, this is precisely what the Apostle Paul told us to do. He said in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You know what one of my favorite thoughts ever is? And only the Christian can say this. One of my favorite thoughts ever is to picture the moment of my own death. I love picturing that moment. No more bills to pay. No more mortgage. No more ruined relationships. No more sin. That in mere moments I will have sinned for the last time. That's a great moment for us to picture. When you're 85 or 90 and you know you're close, that's easier to picture. When you're 15, 18, 20, we resist that. Well, I haven't had my career yet. I haven't been married yet. I haven't had my children yet. I haven't been to Hawaii yet. I haven't done all this and that. That's, as they used to stay, say in Texas, stinking thinking. That's thinking that will get you in trouble. What is your calling? If you've been raised with Christ, it's very simply to rest in the future, just like Mrs. Noah did. There's a second element to her calling, the calling to which she was loyal, and that is to serve her family. To serve her family. And this is a wonderful paradox. To put it very simply, just as she's looking far beyond to the day of a coming flood, she's also looking at the immediate tasks right before her. Now, to understand the focus of her life, we need to look a little more closely at the chronology of the years leading up to the flood. We need to understand what it is she went through. Genesis 6, verse 3, begins the countdown. The clock begins ticking, the countdown to the flood. Genesis 6, verse 3, look at that with me. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Tick, tock, tick, tock. 120 years. Now, many take this as meaning that God would cut the lifespan of a human being to about 120 years, but after the flood, men still lived a lot longer than that, and eventually they lived much shorter than that. So it can't be lifespan. The best option is that this is a countdown. Noah was 500 years old when the sons began to be born. Genesis 5, verse 32 tells us this. And since we know from Genesis 7, verse 6, that he was 600 years old when the flood came, when the sons started being born, we're now 100 years away from the flood, 20 years after the clock has started ticking. When God commanded Noah to build the ark, he said that the ark would save Noah, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives. And so when Noah and his sons start building the ark, the sons at this point are old enough to be married. So given the fact that the sons began being born 100 years before the flood, and they began building the ark when the sons were old enough to be married, this means that broadly it took somewhere between 50 to 75 years to build the ark. But I want to draw your attention to the fact that Noah had been warned that the flood was coming 20 years before they started having children. 20 years before this wasn't a surprise. This wasn't a shift in thinking right in the middle of raising our family. Hey, look at this. We're starting a city. We're building houses, and here's our family. Oh, wait a minute. A flood's coming. No. They knew this 20 years before the kids started being born. The reality of the coming flood was always part of their family. And then ultimately, the reality of the building of the ark. And if the criteria if the responsibility, the, the requirement to get safe passage on the ark is to believe God, to walk with God, to have repentant faith in God, talk about motivation to evangelize your children. And these, these boys, they never knew a time when mom and dad weren't talking about the flood. Mom and dad were talking about the flood 20 years before it. Uh, even the boys started being born. I imagine... It must have been very interesting to live in a time where you're just counting down the days until cataclysm, until literally the end of the world. To raise your children, telling them about the God of Adam and Seth and Enosh and Kenan and Mahalalel and Jared and Enoch from Genesis 5, that these are your ancestors who believed God, and to tell them particularly about Enoch. Enoch, who proved that God is true and that there is another world because God took him while he's alive and he didn't see death. And that Enoch, by the way, boys, was your great-great-grandfather. 
But now sin is so bad in the world that God is going to send a flood. And, and through your dad, through Noah, all who believe in the Lord and fear him would be saved. They will find rest. Did her boys believe? Well, they got on the ark. And they convinced their wives to do so as well. And remember, Noah is a herald. He's a preacher of righteousness, warning all around him that judgment is coming. And through all of his decades of preaching the coming judgment of God, Mrs. Noah never abandoned him. She didn't forsake him. She didn't forsake his message. I mean, I imagine what it's like to be Pastor Noah, as it were, and to show up to church, and nobody's here but my wife and sons and their wives every week. How discouraging must that be to have nobody believe? And yet right by his side, she stayed decade after decade, even when he stood alone. There are very few men who can ever say, I stood alone against the entire world. Noah can say that, and his wife stood by him. She stayed her course with her family. Lot's wife, on the other hand, she rebelled against her husband. She rebelled against God. She abandoned her daughters, and she looked only to her own wants, to her own pleasures. Her heart was ultimately revealed in that when her family needed her the most, when her husband needed her the most, she deserted them. Mrs. Noah's heart was revealed in that she stayed the course. She was faithful to the end as a wife, as a mother, and, by the way, as a mother-in-law to her daughters-in-law. Her daughters-in-law all had families, and their families rebelled and rejected God, and they would die in the flood. And so Mrs. Noah became their mother as well, an example of a believing mom who stays the course of faithfulness. I think it's so instructive to us that Mrs. Noah managed to strike a balance by having hope in a far future day while serving her family in the immediate present. I think this is very telling, by the way. She was living in a world that by the prophecy of God was going to die, but she was investing in something that would go beyond the flood, and that is relationships. She invested in those people around her. By the way, all five mentions in Scripture of Mrs. Noah always have her with her husband and her sons and her daughters-in-law every time. Well, there's a third element of her calling, the calling to which she was loyal to rest in future hope, to serve her family. The third element of her calling is to avoid false contentment. To avoid false contentment. Noah and his family, they weren't nomadic people. You can't carry an ark around you, around with you every time you break camp to move. So we know they stayed in one place. They settled down. They would have had a home. They would have had routines. Don't think that all ancient people lived in in tents made of deer skin. They had homes. They had things that were familiar. And listen, don't think that ancient women weren't still women, that somehow they didn't long for permanence, for a home, to build a nest, to settle into it. And women, you're created to want predictability, to want security, warmth, safety, color, joy. Mrs. Noah very likely had a garden but she knew it would be washed away. She likely had a home, a place where her family ate and gathered and laughed and worshipped, but it would be washed away. I would imagine in this antediluvian world, the time before the flood, that she had a favorite hillside or a beautiful tree to sit under, but that would be washed away. Certainly she enjoyed walking in the meadows and the farmlands, feeling the grass beneath her feet, smelling the grains and the crops growing around her. But these would be washed away. And every day that she saw more progress on the ark was one day closer to losing everything she knew on earth. On the ark, there would be no gardens, no shade trees, no hilltops, no meadows, no fields. She would walk on wooden planks. She would be confined to this ship with water literally around the world, thousands and thousands of miles. You couldn't even imagine, maybe we'll land on an island somewhere. There were no islands. There were no places to land. And yet she got on the ark. She got on. The poor Lot's wife though it was very clear that judgment was coming, the angels of God literally were physically dragging Lot's wife out of the city saying, run, run, run. The, the noise, the debauchery, the drink, the sin, the commerce, the worldly appeal of the city of Sodom 
was all she could think about, and it led to her own death and judgment. By the way, just to put sin in perspective, the most likely site of the city of Sodom is south of the Dead Sea at a site called Bab el-Dra. It was discovered in the early 1970s. It's a city that's completely burned. In fact, it's been proven to have been burned from the top down, which is an unusual phenomenon. And incidentally, just north of the ruins, there's another completely burned city called Numera, sometimes known as Gomorrah. But this city was apparently, Sodom must have been so glorious, so beautiful, so irresistible that Lot's wife couldn't resist its appeal. You know that the city of Sodom was just over nine acres big. Some of you own more land than that. She had a husband who in faith in the Lord, as proven by his obedience to escape judgment, she, he had faith, but the pleasures of by what our standards is a dumpy little town was too much for her. Too much for Lot's wife to resist, and she was taken in by the false contentment that the world's pleasures had to offer by comparison, we can surmise that Mrs. Noah wasn't taken in by the pleasures and hopes and dreams of the world. She didn't try to drown her sorrows in, in worldly distractions. Instead, she maintained her faith in the Lord for well over a century. She waited for 120 years before the flood, 50 to 75 years of those, of those years, watching the ark be built. She was patient and patient and patient, endless patience, not waiting for things to get better, but waiting for a cataclysm where everything got worse. She waited on the Lord to destroy everything familiar to her. But her contentment wasn't based in what she could acquire. It wasn't based on what she could accomplish. It wasn't based on what she could enjoy. We know this because she left it all. She left it all. And then when she entered the ark, she was aboard for just over a full year. Look, when I'm stuck in a car for a few hours, I'm ready to pull over and stretch my legs a little bit. She's waiting on the Lord for the rain to stop and then for the water to recede. And then she has to rebuild a whole new life, beginning with, you ready for this? Unloading the ark. I'm not a fan of unloading our car after a vacation. I can't imagine unloading a vessel that is 101,250 square feet. That's a lot to unload. But she waited and waited and waited. Lot's wife couldn't wait one day. Not one day. Now, while you're waiting, certainly we're called to enjoy our lives. The book of Ecclesiastes gives us permission to do this. But please beware of trying to numb your pain with worldly pleasures. How many Christians I've seen get addicted to alcohol, to drugs, to entertainment of every kind, to pornography, anything and everything to numb the pain while we wait. What do you do instead? Well, very simply, you demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit of God as listed in Galatians 5, the fourth of which is patience. Walk with God. Take the lesson of Mrs. Noah and be loyal to your calling to rest in a future hope, to serve your family and those you love, and to avoid false contentment. Now, as we walk through these lessons, I always want to point out that like the other stories, the story of the flood is much bigger than just Noah or Mrs. Noah. As with all of our times of waiting, it fits into a larger redemptive plan of God. One of the reasons for the flood was that demons were violating God's boundaries for them and inhabiting the bodies of men and conceiving children with the women of the world. Genesis 6 verse 4 tells us this. But God had already told Satan in Genesis 3.15 that the children of Satan would not prevail against him. And the flood wiped out these demonically inspired offspring, proving that God will always prevail over the children of Satan. And of course, it would be through Mrs. Noah that the earth would be repopulated. She, in essence, becomes another Eve. And then through her son, Shem, Israel would come. And through Israel, Christ, the true and living ark, he would come. And in fact, it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who had warned that you had better join his kingdom before it's too late. You'd better repent of your sin and believe God. Stop being enamored by the things of the world. In fact, he said in Luke 17 that when he returns, it will be like the days of Noah, when the world was surprised by the flood. And that his return will be like the days of Sodom, 
when fire and sulfur destroyed all the ungodly, that you'd better believe that judgment is coming. And Jesus gives a little three-word warning to illustrate the seriousness of not heeding the call to repent and to avoid the wrath of God. His little three-word warning in Luke 17, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. At the south end of the Dead Sea is a five-mile-long hill called Jebel Uzdum. It's a massive mound of salt. And somewhere in that mound lies the entombed body of Lot's wife, a reminder that no one will escape the judgment of God unless he provides a way out. And somewhere in the mountains of Ararat, Mrs. Noah got off her husband's ark having learned that God rescues those who believe on him from the fury of his wrath. And so the story of Noah's wife, of Mrs. Noah, is not just a story of how to wait on the Lord. It is a piece of the puzzle that fits into redemptive history, a reminder to us to avoid the judgment of God that he will always provide a way out. Our Father, we thank you so much for the the people in the Bible. We thank you that you did not just give us a dry book of theology. You gave us a story with people in it who demonstrate both faithfulness and then those who demonstrate faithlessness. And the latter are a warning to us. The former are an encouragement to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the, the lesson presented by the comparison of these two women. And, Lord, for those among us, which I would say probably is most of us, we're waiting on something. We're trusting you for something that is unresolved. And perhaps it's a child who is so difficult and maybe has grown up rejecting you that we are now waiting with longing for their salvation. And perhaps it's for a desire for marriage or a desire for children that has as yet gone unanswered, unheeded. Those things that make us feel as if you are silent, which make us feel as if you are not listening to our prayers. And yet, Noah's wife gives us this beautiful example to look far ahead, to rest in the future that you have guaranteed to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then also to simply be faithful to those relationships around us, to love those around us here in this moment, and to be gracious and kind to them, to serve them. And then, Lord, not only to look to the future and to serve well in the present, but to avoid the false contentment that the world could fool us into thinking we can receive, to to avoid looking to anything but Christ for our joy and for our happiness. Lord, I pray that these lessons will be well received. I pray that those who are in a difficult time of waiting could take a deep breath and a sigh of relief that you are the same God who brought Noah and his wife and their three sons and daughters-in-law through the flood. You are the very same God. And if you can provide for them in a cataclysm that the world has never seen before or since, then certainly you can provide for our little tiny problems, our little times of waiting. Give us the faith, Lord. Strengthen our hope. Strengthen our resolve to be steadfast in the Lord during our time of waiting, during our time in the desert. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.